0: Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Michael Walworth, chairman and CEO of Yext. I got to tell you, Michael is one of the most remarkable entrepreneurs I know. Get this, in three years, he built a $35 million company called Right Media and then sold it to Yahoo for almost $800 million. No doubt about it, those are some impressive numbers. But when you dig a little deeper, what makes Michael truly impressive is how he's found lessons and growth and opportunities all along the way. He's always looking for what's missing and how he can build it. If you can see what problems haven't been solved yet when you look at your industry or your customers or even your team and then build something to solve it, let me tell you, you're going to find some success. It's a vital skill for entrepreneurs and every other kind of leader. And when you listen to Michael, you can see how he's done it. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Michael Waller. Mike, it's really great to have you on the show.
1: It's great to be here, David. I feel like we should just end it now because I can't live up to that introduction.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You You know, you've had such a remarkable career and it's full of highlights and some amazing experiences. And I want to walk you through your career journey and get some of the insights that you had along the way. But I got to start by saying, here you are, a CEO of a public company, but I learned you actually tended bar after college. You know, What'd you learn from that experience?
1: <laughs> that I didn't want a 10 bar for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, that's a true story. I went to the University of Richmond. I graduated with the university's finest bachelor's of English degree, which made me entirely unemployable. So I went to the job I knew I could do, which was tending bar. <laughs> <laughs> and actually what I would do is I would tend bar until about three o'clock in the morning and I'd go home and sleep for three or four hours. And then, you know me, I would sneak out to a golf course and play golf and have a little nap. And then I go back and I tend bar again.
0: I understand that one of your regulars at the bar was a wealthy commodities trader. Yep. What intrigued you about this guy and that business that eventually led you to the, the DH Blair brokerage business.
1: So there was this guy and who, who I won't name, but anybody who grew up in my town probably knows who I'm talking about. And he would come in and he would, he was a nice guy. He was a big personality, uh, a little rough around the edges. And, and, he always had a fistful of $100 bills and he was kind of demanding, but like you always knew you were going to make some money when he came in. And so I was just kind of fascinated by him. And I, I'd grown up in a household that had, you know, we, my dad was a school social worker, spent 37 years in the inner city school system. And my mom was a homemaker and just there was no kind of real business grounding in my, in my world, which was, you know, we were, it was a long line of teachers, uh, which was what I figured I was going to do. And so this guy with this business background, it just kind of fascinated me and I was, you know, kind of watching him and getting to know him a little bit and reading the paper one ads in 1998. And there was this ad that said, uh, you know, Wall Street job, no experience required. And so I, I picked up the phone and I called him, and they said, yeah, come on down for an interview. And that happened to be at that uh, that firm DH Blair. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. <laughs>
0: I read where you had a little stint at DH Blair where where you were making 500 cold calls a day for $250 a week. That's right. How did that experience impact the way you look at failure and and rejection And, and even perseverance, even all these years later? I mean, that had to have a lasting impact on you.
1: After that, selling anything was easy. Doing that job, you know, you got really good at dialing a a push button phone with your right hand, cradling it against your neck and with your left side. And you just it was a numbers game. It was you had to make five hundred of those phone calls. And, you know, if you kept 20 people on the phone for more than a minute, then you were doing pretty well. And the goal was to have five people uh, you know, tell you that they might someday buy some stock over the phone. And I did it mindlessly for about, you know, two months there. And after that, no sales job Selling anything was hard.
0: <laughs> and then one day, the company was raided by the FBI and the Securities and Exchange Commission, and they they shut it down. This sounds like you can't make this stuff up. It sounds like a scene in the movie. Were, were you there that day?
1: I was there that day. I was probably two months on the job. I was living at home in Connecticut. I had to drive thirty minutes to a train station. I would take an hour and twenty minute train to Grand Central, and then I had to take a a subway down to Wall Street. So it would take me about two hours and 20 minutes each way. I would generally leave the house at 4.30 in the morning. I'd get home around 10 uh, because you were required to be in your seat by 7 a.m. There I am. I'm sitting in my seat one morning. It's about 7.15, and the guy who I worked for comes in and he says, uh, hey, put your stuff in your bag and meet me in the lobby. And I said, well, it's like a field trip. He goes, no, everything in a bag, meet me in the lobby. And so I, I did what I was told, put my stuff in a bag, and as I'm walking out the elevators, the vans are pulling up outside, and the FBI and the SEC or the DOJ—I don't know who they were—they're were all running in the building. And it turns out that one of the one of the guys at the firm had been uh, had been doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing.
0: <laughs> How did that experience shape your view of of leadership? <laughs> that's, wow. that's a wild one.
1: <laughs> it was pretty wild, and and the crazy thing was was. There were about five of us who were part of this little group at the place who worked for this guy. And we got in these black cars and we drove uptown to to a, a different firm that was that operated in a fairly similar manner, maybe a little bit more legit. And uh, by 8.30, we were sitting at desks with phones doing the same thing we were doing down there. I mean, I literally changed jobs in an hour.
0: So I guess it taught you that you had to be adaptable and uh, move to the next thing if that was what the case said, huh?
1: (laughs) It really, you know, it was, you got to roll with it. I mean, I'm learning this again now. Every day there's going to be a surprise. And, you know, you got hopefully not quite like that, but.
0: (laughs) Now, a week before this raid happened, you were planning to take the exam to become a licensed broker. And then I understand you actually went from there Into the fitness industry, I mean.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so this was pretty formative for me. So it was actually after that. So after the raid, we went to this other firm called um, Sands Brothers, which was definitely a, a better place than the original place. I continued to study for the broker's exam there and was actually you know, doing the job and making the numbers and doing all the things. And what's funny about that job is you're doing it 12 hours a day and you just don't even have time to think about what you're doing. And you're so tired and you're so exhausted. And so I finally, I'm about to go take the test, and kind of the bosses call me into a conference room one day, and they give me this big pep talk about taking the test and about how I'm going to be so successful and about how you know I'm going to be just like them, and they give me this whole speech. And so I I leave and I go home, and I'm actually feeling pretty good about myself because you work really hard and you want to progress. And the craziest thing happened. So I I went to bed, and I was always just kind of fell into bed, and I woke up at about two o'clock in the morning, and I'm having. You know, what I now know was a panic attack, but I'd never, you know, I, I didn't know what was happening. I was sort of seeing strobes and my heart rate was up and I was sweating. And I did at that moment the only thing that I knew what to do, which is I called my wife, who was finishing her senior year at the University of Richmond, uh, where we had met. And she happened to pick up the phone at two o'clock in the morning. And I told her this whole story. And I said, I don't know what's wrong with me. And she said, I think it's obvious what's wrong with you. And by the way, this is a trait of hers, is to be annoyingly right about everything and she says i think it's fairly obvious what's wrong with you 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 don't want to be like those guys and you know you've been working so hard and and it was like a light bulb went off and like my heart calmed down and the sweat went away and i was like she's she's right like i I had no desire to achieve the thing that i'd been working so hard to achieve and so i, I woke up the next day and i went in and i and I quit the job and they looked at me like I was crazy. They said, you've been torturing yourself here for, for months and you're there, you're done. It's going to get better now. You're going to, you're going to get to like go out with us and, you know, go to the clubs and I just couldn't do it.
0: <laughs> what, what was your boss like there?
1: Mine was not quite the character that, that a lot of the guys were, he was actually fairly low key by these standards. And, you know, I mean, there were, there were a lot of crazy bosses in this, in these places, everybody's aggressive in that environment, but he was on the less aggressive side. So, you know, I don't think I would have lasted as long as I did with one of these screamers (laughs) as a, as a boss.
0: (laughs) Well, then you, you went to be a trainer.
1: Well, yeah. First I went back to the bar.
0: Oh, okay. You had to, you got it. You had to have a drink.
1: I needed some money. (laughs) I was making $250 a week. You know, at the time I could make $250 a night at a good night at the bar. So, the uh, so first thing I did was I went back to the bar and I made a little bit of money. The second thing I did was I actually did a six month stint with an event marketing company where I spent six months on the road doing uh, event marketing for Reebok. Um, we just traveled from event to event and and did shoe demos and stuff like that, which was a really fun job and then I came home and I said, "I don't know what I'm gonna do." but I'd gotten really into kind of fitness while I was on the road, and so i decided I would become a personal trainer, and that was the the next step in my obviously rocket ship trajectory career.
0: (laughs) 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 And then you change your career path again, and you start selling online advertising at DoubleClick. How'd you get into that business?
1: I had become pretty good friends with the guy who sold memberships at New York Sports Club, which is where I was doing personal training. And ultimately, I got promoted to manage the personal trainers, which is really kind of a sales job. And so the guy who sold memberships, he heard about this company called DoubleClick that was you know, changing the way advertising worked and he got all excited about it. He went and interviewed and he came back and he said, I got the job, you really should go interview. And so I took his advice and I went in and I interviewed. And at that time, this was, I guess, like late 1999, the internet was on fire. Everything was up, up, up. And uh, DoubleClick was hiring about 25 young salespeople a week. Putting them through a whole sales training program, and kind of inside outside sales, and so pretty much if you had some sales experience, they would hire you. and And so I told them about my five hundred dials a day, and they said we could do something with you, and they offered me a job.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, now you climbed the ladder there really quickly, though.
1: Well, I'd say the the ladder client you know kind of came down on me in some ways. I, I joined there in late 1999. The scene was. It was late 99 the stock was trading at probably, you know, oh well I can tell you for sure my uh my stock options were priced around $200 a share. And I think they gave me 2000 of them the day that I joined, you know, and I figured I'd be a millionaire cuz cuz the stock seemed to go up about 10% every day. And by March of 2000 the stock was down to about 9 bucks. Or you know, <laughs> it was I don't know where it was. It was on its way to about 9 bucks and I realized I wasn't going to be a millionaire. But I was having some success selling. And what happened was the company went through just a series of seven or eight layoffs. And every time there was a layoff, there was kind of something lying around that somebody didn't want to do. And I would just say, I'll I'll take that, you know, I'll, I'll take that client, or I'll take that project, or I'll take that on. And for me, it was that was business school. That's where I kind of figured out how to maneuver. And I learned like, you know, it was embarrassing how little I knew about kind of, my vocabulary. And I didn't know what a and L was and certainly didn't know anything about, you know, accruals and other accounting terms and things like that. So I, I had some good mentors there and I, and I got a chance to learn a lot of things because the organization was in turmoil.
0: Tell us a story of how you mustered up the courage to leave double click and go out on your own and start right media. What made you pull the trigger and jump out of the comfort zone? If it was a comfort zone.
1: No, <laughs> well, it was comfortable. I mean, you know, for the first time in my life, um, so so one of the things about that time period was I had developed this kind of niche there where I was selling to direct marketers and I was selling digital advertising to direct marketers. And during a time where the, the you know, we were in a major recession and uh, it was, you know, this is where direct marketers thrive, right? So they can buy a lot of stuff cheap and they were. I had a, a great book of business there, and I was making a great living at age, you know, twenty-four, twenty-five, or whatever it was. I had just had my first; uh, I had actually just had my second child, and uh, things were great. And I didn't really want to leave. I actually had pitched this idea. So the genesis of this was I had figured out how to game the algorithm that was delivering the ads. So I would sell something for five dollars, and I had figured out how to make that basically deliver ahead of something that was priced much higher which was really bad for the company but it was just a matter of kind of you know figuring out how the how the ad system thought and what it delivered and so my first step was I went to the you know I got a meeting with the president of the company and I said look if I can do this anybody can do this like we got to fix this and I think if we do this right we could build this kind of exchange like functionality where we always make sure that the the highest paying ad gets delivered into each spot and rightfully i mean i'm just some like 24 year old sales guy and they kind of looked at me sideways and said what what do you (laughs) go back and sell man and so i did that for a little while and it just kept gnawing at me and i finally just said i gotta go so i left and i decided that i was going to find a way to make enough money to build a to build a company that solved the problem that i was exploiting as a as a salesperson
0: Hey, you know, because you're listening to this, I can tell you're the kind of person who wants to learn how to lead well. But there's a lot of companies out there who want to take that desire and charge you $500 or $1,000 or heck, even $20,000 to try and show you how to lead. That's just not right. If you want to be a better leader, I believe you deserve to have access to something that will truly help you. And it shouldn't cost a fortune. So I want you to go to HowLeadersLead.com and start my leadership class. It's really and truly free. And after you take this class, you're going to feel more confident in your role and you'll be on your way to getting big things done with your team. Go check it out at HowLeadersLead.com. You've become Ernst Young's Entrepreneur of the Year in 2007 after building the company to $35 million in revenue in just three years, and then you sell it for almost $800 million. I mean, that's not bad. No, it wasn't bad. <laughs> what was the key to the to your growth that others could learn from as they apply that to their businesses?
1: Well, I mean, uh, humbly, I think the key was was, you know, sort of being the right time at the right place with your idea. Uh, you know, we had a lot of tailwinds coming out of the sort of, it felt like 2002, the meltdown was never going to end, the sort of the, the nuclear winter was going to be around forever. And by 2003, you know, we were like booming again. And so that that was part of it. I think the other part of it was the the biggest thing I learned was like, all I did was sort of question everything that, you know, I saw and then tried to figure out how do you build something better. I love this Paul Graham story. So Paul, you know, Y Combinator, Paul Graham, he said something that to me always resonated, which was founders, they live in the future and they build what's missing, right? And I think the only way you do that is by analyzing all the time what's missing, what's not right here, what could be better, what can work better. What this story taught me was everything starts with understanding that.
0: Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. You know, that's how you disrupt categories. You solve the biggest problems that occur most frequently. And, and you did that in, with right media, which is amazing. You know, it's always tough to sell your baby. I mean, you created this and sure you're selling it for a ton of money, almost a billion dollars, but take us through your, your keep or sell decision, because I'm sure it looks easy now, but probably wasn't back then.
1: It was not easy. We had a great team of people. What made it a little easier was that we knew the Yahoo folks really well. They were investors in our business. Um, Jerry, who I know is a good friend of yours, was you know I'd say had become a friend. We we didn't know each other real well, but he had supported them investing in our business, and we had a commercial partnership that you know that was important for us and. And so, you know, it's a lot easier, I think, when you know the people who you're you're getting involved with. But it didn't make it easy. I mean, it was really, a, I think, at the end of the day, what was going on in that, like, three-week period of time, DoubleClick sold to Google. And we were competing with DoubleClick. And then Aquantive sold to Microsoft. And we were sort of the last significant asset in the ad delivery and management space that hadn't been acquired in, like, a two-week period. And so, you know, it was clear that we were going to get a... A significant premium for the business. And, you know, in the end it was a kind of a gut call. And I think if we had stayed independent, we would have wound up building a much bigger business because what we built became an industry. I think, you know, inside Yahoo, we struggled to continue to to innovate. And and that wasn't the easiest thing, but there's a lot of good that came out of, you know, that that whole experience. And you know, I, I think, you know, I'm a big believer that one thing leads to the next thing. And I probably learned a lot of things that I never would have learned if I had held on to it.
0: you know it's really interesting because here you are. you're an entrepreneur. you know you've you've really started this thing from scratch, so this entrepreneurial spirit has to be in your DNA and then you move into a corporate environment like Yahoo. I think you're the senior vice president. You basically are running your your business. What did you learn from that experience?
1: Sometimes you don't know when you're going to use the things you learn, right? And so in the moment if you'd interviewed me in the moment or shortly afterwards what i would have said was like i, I had no idea how hard it was going to be to make the the shift from you know kind of running a startup where like i got to control everything i got to have my hands in everything i mean you know every wire in that company kind of ran through my head right and and i th- actually thought that was a that was a really good thing at the time and so then you go inside you go into yahoo and um, you know, I sort of got myself grounded there, and I wound up with this huge organization. I was running the, basically operating all the ad marketplaces there. It was a, almost five thousand people. It was a global organization. I was spending most weeks on an airplane. If you had interviewed me during that time or right after, I would have told you I hated it. You know that like it was too much of a transition, and this place operated differently, and everything happened too slow, and you had to get too many people to buy into things, and too much bureaucracy, and. In hindsight, my view is really different. I, I learned a completely different mode of operation, and I learned, you know, what it takes to to do things at scale. And you know that that's serving me today, like literally today. Because if I had never had that experience, I would still be the guy who thinks that you got to do everything yourself. And so, you know, I didn't realize it was going to take as long as it did before I really got to put that experience to work. But you know,
0: well, that's a perfect segue because I want to get into how you're now leading. Yext. but before I do, I got a, just a couple more questions. You know, tell us a story from your childhood that that impacted the kind of leader you are today.
1: My childhood was awesome. I grew up in Brookfield, Connecticut. I had great parents. I have an older brother and two younger sisters, really tight family. You know, we were not a household where the Wall Street Journal or you know financial <laughs> publications were were coming to the house every day and it was a sort of idyllic environment where I grew up. But we didn't think too deeply about a lot of the you know entrepreneurial endeavors or anything like that. The first kind of, I think, touch point I had with, with an entrepreneur was when I was about 14 years old, uh, my brother had gotten a job at, at the local convenience store. They needed someone to come for three hours on Sunday mornings and put together the New York Times because it would come in all these different sections and you had to put it all together. I took the job for five bucks an hour, three hours a week. I would go in there and, uh, and I'd eat, eat a donut. And uh, I learned to drink coffee because it was five o'clock in the morning. And I would put together the New York Times. And the guys who owned that business, turned out they had bought this convenience store. But then what they became were like the karaoke kings of of Connecticut, where they, you know karaoke was super. This is 1990. I don't know. Maybe it's 1990. <laughs> and they're, they're sort of karaoke's hot. And you could just see the, there were these kind of two young guys who own the convenience store and they're out there like you know running karaoke shows and stuff and you know there was just something about the like the hustle that got my attention and it turns out i worked at that store most of my high school career i was you know it became a pizza place and a, a convenience store and i just kind of stayed and figured it out and by the time it was done i was kind of half managing the place which really I wasn't qualified to do, but they didn't have anybody else.
0: <laughs> That's what you keep saying, but it seems like you do pretty well in everything you get into.
1: It was just another thing to figure out. Yeah.
0: Now tell us about Yext and and how you hooked up with this company.
1: It's funny. It segues from the Yahoo story, right? So um, when I left Yahoo in late 2010, my tour of duty that I had agreed to when I sold the company was over. And um, it was it was time for me to move on and there were a lot of changes going on inside the company and and I really didn't have any any plan. You know, I sort of somewhere thought I'd probably start another company, but I wasn't in any hurry to get right back into the grind. And so, you know, what I did was I got together with my partners, Jonah and Noah Goodhart, who'd been part of the whole right media story since day one as investors and board members and advisors and we started investing, and one of the early investments we made was in this company called Yext, which was run by a guy who you know, named Howard Lerman, who was a brilliant entrepreneur and was early in his cycle. And I just, you know, really liked what the company was trying to do and uh, and the people who were around it. And so I made the investment, and I, I got involved in his advisor, and then invested again and invested again, and eventually Howard asked me to be the chairman. And so around 2010, I I became the chairman of the company, and uh, we proceeded to have a really, you know, great run for about 10 years. You know, I was a non-executive chairman. I was hands-off, but I was talking to Howard, you know, a couple times a week or daily sometimes and just really enjoying the ride of kind of a disruptive startup again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I understand you were aiming to be the next Yellow Pages, except for digital. Uh, explain what the business is.
1: So what the business is today is actually nothing like what the business was when I invested, which is part of the, what makes the story so, so interesting. So the original business was a pay-per-call marketing company that had come up with some really neat technology to transcript phone calls so you could buy leads. If you were a locksmith or a gym or something like that, you could basically pay for leads based on people driving phone calls to your business the company would provide a transcript of every call. It was a really neat you know, piece of technology, and the company had a lot of headway, and then it kind of hit a wall. Um, and it raised a bunch of venture capital, and it just became clear that the growth in that business wasn't you know, kind of what was needed. And around the same time, Howard had this idea to build an engine that would help people manage their listings, their local listings, because that that market was becoming very fragmented. And you needed to be able to make sure that your phone number and address and hours of operation were correct in more than just one place. There was a major kind of moment where the company actually sold the legacy business to IAC and start it over, and use the money from the sale as basically refresh its, its coffers, and start it over as, a, as an enterprise software startup. And the, the fundamental value proposition of that company was your customers have questions about your business, such as where are you, what time are you open, what are your specials, um, things like that. And you need to make sure they're getting the right answer to the question. And there's been a big evolution of the company since then, but I would still say fundamentally at the center of everything we do is that principle.
0: Now you mentioned earlier, and I thought it was a great insight about finding out what's missing and then solving that. When you look at your business today, what's missing out there, or can you even talk about it? You don't want to give it to your competitors.
1: Yeah, no. Look, I'm, I mean, well, I'm sure there are things missing that we haven't figured out yet. But the company, you know, as as you know, we've talked about, hasn't had the best run the last couple of years, and there's lots of reasons for that, and some of them are are us, and some of that are are the market. And when you sell, a a big part of our customer base is retail and hospitality. And pandemics are tough on those industries. So there's a lot there. But I think, fundamentally, if you go from 2010, what we built was something that wasn't there. It was a platform that lets you manage your local listings. When we first built it, it it was an evangelical sale because no one had a platform that did that. By the time we got the company public in 2017, it was you know, sort of a foregone, you, know, you kind of had to have that as a business because the, the market was established. And so we, we went through sort of a similar exercise around that time where we said, this is a great market and we really had a lot of it, but there was a question about the growth prospects. And so we started right back to that same question of like, okay, what's missing? What's not working that we can make work? And the thing that jumped out at us was, was search. So we all know how well search works on Google, but what was missing was the ability to make search work elsewhere. And so the company launched a new product in late 2018 that enables businesses of any kind to basically embed different search functionality into their website, into different functional areas of their business. And it turns out that I think a lot of people don't know how much that functionality was missing because The same problem that comes from not having the answer to the customer question on Yelp or on Yahoo or on Google occurs when a user comes to your site. In fact, it's probably worse when a user comes to your site and they can't get the answer to the question they want.
0: We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Michael Walworth in just a moment. You know, Michael's journey as an entrepreneur has been about seeing what's missing in an industry and then building that thing. And it reminds me of another leader with a clear philosophy on how they build products. Patrick Spence is the CEO of Sonos. And in our conversation, he shares a lot of wisdom about the importance of building things to last, whether it's a product or a whole company.
1: It's really been a philosophical thing to try and build amazing products that last for a long time because it's something we would want as consumers. It's something we think is better for the environment. And so it's just something that's been important to us. And I think when you're hiring for that, when you're thinking in that way, it can't help but influence also the kind of people that you're attracting to your culture. And so I think that helps in trying to build a company as well that's enduring.
0: Go back and listen to my entire conversation with Patrick, episode 81, here on How Leaders Lead. Here you are, your executive chairman. You're not involved other than maybe a couple phone calls a week just to check in with Howard. The business obviously goes the wrong direction. And now you're the man. They bring you in to basically turn it around. What have you learned about that turnaround period? How long does it take you before you you basically own the results? Because I, I've been in those situations where I came in and I'm not proud of myself necessarily, but I blame my successor, and you know. But how long does it take you before you say, "Hey, this is on my dime now,"
1: or does that happen immediately? Well, it's easy to look back and and criticize decisions that were made before, and you know, part of this is look, I was here, right? I may not have made the decision, but I was in the boat. I could have said something. You know, it's been an interesting transition. Six months in, you know, I think we're getting to the point where we really need to own the results, right? I think those first couple quarters, you're spending a lot of time figuring out what you don't know. And now, you know, it's, if I don't know something, that's my bad, right? And so the decisions that I make now are going to f- impact the, the performance of the company going forward. And I think my team thinks the same way about this. And by the way, my team is awesome. We're going to have to own it, good or bad. It's on us.
0: What's the biggest leadership challenge you have in this situation now?
1: Right now, it's just change is hard, even when you know it's the right thing. And even when organizationally, I mean, one thing I'll say about this company in particular is like, it is a group of people who want to find the right answer. And more than any company I've ever been part of, there's a spirit here of, you know, if you can show me that there's a problem, I want to help find the solution. Even if that means that my role has got to change or... The scope of my, my job's got to change or I got to do something else or I'm wrong about this. There's a real great culture here of that. But even with that, it's just change is hard. And we've had personnel change and we have, we have some strategic changes and some approach changes. And every time you do it, it's hard. And, you know, there's no way to make it easy.
0: Do you have a process that you use yourself to navigate through these challenges or, you know, how do you go about it?
1: So my process, and, and it, it goes to you know, what I, I think what I learned being an entrepreneur and being in the center of every decision and realizing that that, that doesn't work that well. And you know, I think in a lot of ways, and maybe I've, I've overcompensated. So, so I've gone from I'm going to control everything to you know, what I think some of the, my team members refer to as you know, radical delegation. So a big part of my process is like I, I don't believe in tops down at any level. I think communication is important at the top level, but I can't ask my team to do things that they're not bought into. And so one of the ways that I try to manage the change process is just making sure that, you know, that everybody knows that the discussion is transparent, that we're all being very honest and very transparent about what's not working. And then to the extent that we have to make changes that everybody's, you know, buying in. And the, and the way I do that is by delegating a tremendous amount of responsibility And then making sure that we all feel a sense of accountability for the decisions that we make. And I'm not going to say it makes it easier, but I think, you know, generally it feels easier to me when everybody's kind of bought into the choice we're making. What are you most excited about
0: now at Yext?
1: I think one of the things I'm going to benefit greatly from is the fact that we were too early to this search market. And you know, we brought a product to market that was aspirational, which is just kind of a you know disruptive startup thing to do. But also, just people, I think a lot of companies weren't ready for this phase of their digital transformation yet to really think about what does my customer journey look like across every everything that I control, my support site, my website, all the different properties I might have. And so, I'm excited because I'm now meeting with CEOs of companies and they're. They're acknowledging, hey, one of the biggest problems we have is getting correct information to people through all these different channels. And that is right in the company's wheelhouse. And frankly, like I'll wind up getting credit for executing on something that was Howard's idea and Howard's mission and Howard's vision. And he was frankly just ahead of the curve. And he probably, you know, and he and I talk about this all the time, he probably pivoted too aggressively towards it too early. And so it'll look like I did this, this big fixing of the problem, um, but really the market's ready for it. And that's, that's the thing that's most exciting. Great.
0: You know, and Mike, one thing I know about you, you have such varied interests and you founded a production company, Atlas Films, along with your wife, Michelle. Tell us about that and what you're working on today.
1: I guess technically we founded that it was with one of my great friends from childhood who uh, had gone to NYU film school and worked in the, she worked for Barbara Walters and Bill O'Reilly. And we actually lived next to each other when I first moved to New York City after college. And uh, we used to sit around in her, in her living room and we'd talk about like, you know, I mean, neither one of us had two dimes to rub together, but we'd talk about how cool it would be to like someday make, you know, documentary films that matter about subjects that matter. And and so, you know, she was sort of at a, at a turning point in her career right around the time that we had done the right media transaction. It just felt like the time to take on some of these projects. And so we got pretty actively involved in a couple documentaries. Um, first one was around bottled water and the plastic industry. And the second one was around, and this was the one that I think we were kind of most involved in was around the uh, the food industry and the kind of health epidemic that was being created by sugar and uh, the the added sugar in our food supply called fed up that turn that was the kind of most commercially successful of those endeavors but i gotta say like stephanie really drives this this thing and she she runs it, and she does a great job of it, and you know we're incredibly proud of the content that comes out of it. Although, you know, I have to say we're we're less involved than the founder title would would suggest. Yeah, but
0: you're making a big difference in the world by dealing with those big subjects, you know. And and you've also had a little fun, and you've founded Ohoopee Match Club, which is one of the most prestigious and top new golf clubs in the world. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you thought through the the member and and guest experience. Because it's amazing. I've I've had the the blessing to be able to go there and just enjoy your place. But it's there's no place quite like it. And you you have definitely thought through the what I just call the customer experience. Tell us a little bit about how you went about that.
1: A Hoopy has been one of the great, you know, sort of surprising adventures for me. And surprising in the sense that, like, it's the kind of thing you wouldn't even dare to dream about when you were, you know, when you're a kid who grew up loving playing golf. I mean, I grew up playing golf on a, Nine hole municipal golf course. We had mats instead of tee boxes. It was 10 bucks and you could go around as many times as you want. We'd lose all our golf balls and go in the woods and find more. And that was how I grew up playing golf. I wasn't a country club kid. And I was probably 25 years old the first time I ever played on a private golf course. But a hoopie came along at a time in my life when, you know, I was really passionate about golf. I'd been fortunate to have friends like yourself and, and others who you know, who were part of a, a network of golfers that expanded my universe in ways that I never could have imagined. And a lot of the great experiences that I've had over the last 10 or 15 years have been on these golf trips with friends, with, you know, sometimes they're for business, sometimes they're just for pleasure, sometimes it's some combination of the two. And, you know, getting to spend that quality time, I mean, I think you and I got to have a four-hour conversation uh, on a flight to a golf event at one point And, it's impossible to put value on that. The whole thing started with, well, what if there was just a place that was like only about that sort of friend's trip and it was casual and it was relaxed, but it had a serious kind of golf component to it. And that's what started it was just this idea of like, you know, same, I'll go back to it, like what's missing, right? And there wasn't a lot missing for me in, in the world of golf, but what was missing was, was this sort of retreat where it was all about that trip and the interaction with people. And everything we've done there has been to, you know, in service of that.
0: That's such a simple yet bold vision. It really is. And people can rally around that kind of thing. And it's great. Have you always had that capability to, to just kind of wrap things up in a nice bow like that so people get what you're talking about?
1: Well, first of all, you're, you're so kind and you, and you put these amazing spins on things, which is really, you know, what I just described was just a, an incredibly selfish act of wanting to create a, a place to hang out with my buddies and you turned it into something much of much higher value. So I appreciate <laughs> that from you. You know, one of the things that, for better or for worse, that, that English degree, uh, composition and literature from University of Richmond gave me was the ability to communicate an idea. And I never would have guessed how important that was going to be me in business and in life when i was you know basically taking the classes that came came you know most naturally to me to avoid you know those chemistry and biology classes that i i couldn't seem to pass
0: (laughs) you and me both i'm a journalism major you know so we have a lot in common i think that's why we hit it (laughs) off you know you have so many projects that i could go into that you've been a part of but you know it's really interesting you're involved in a lot you got to be getting multiple phone calls ringing Which call do you pick up first? I mean, how do you focus What have you learned about, you know, you got all this stuff on your plate. How can you help others navigate through such a situation like that?
1: I'm sure I ignore or don't pay attention to a great opportunity every day. And it's it's one of the downsides of, you know, having a lot of really interesting things to to think about and to and to work on. one of the things I'm figuring out now, and and you know this this experience unexpectedly coming in to to take on a a big meaty public company kind of turnaround situation is like I, I think for a little while there I forgot how important focus can be, and I've I've been refocusing myself of late, and what it means is it's a, it's a sort of a distilling process and uh, figuring out what things I don't have time for is just as important as how I manage the time I have with the things that I am focused on. And it's not the easiest thing because there's a lot of things I'd really like to be giving more time to right now that, that I can't, but I think that's a very high class problem.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. And, you know, I understand that the amazing chef Thomas Keller has inspired the way you live and lead. Tell us
1: about that. I don't keep in touch with Thomas as well as, as I wish I did. And he and I got to know each other. I'll forget even what the original connection was. I believe it was through his wife. I'd been to his restaurants. I'd always admired the the way he delivered his experience. And then I got, when I got to meet him and spend some time with him, I just, I, I was even more impressed because he's, he's as low key as they come. He's, he's a really nice human being, but his dedication to his craft and his, his focus on, on quality and the elegance of what he delivers. I, I've just always been so impressed with it. I find him as a human being to be inspiring.
0: Yeah, he's a very humble guy who's done a lot. You know, he's not looking for the limelight, and uh, and neither do you. In fact, I was really happy to get this podcast because I know you don't do it very often, so thank you. Thank you very well, much.
1: I Listen, I, I'd pay a lot to talk to you for an hour.
0: So <laughs> You know, this has been so much fun, and, and I'd like to have a little bit more with some rapid-fire questions. It's it's my lightning round, okay? What would be three words others would use to describe you?
1: Hopefully, they would be words like, um, like thoughtful and patient and engaged, but you know, if we're not including my college buddies, they might have different ones. (laughs) If you could
0: be one person for a day besides yourself, who would it be and why?
1: I would be Rory McIlroy because just once I want to feel what it feels like to hit a driver the way he does. (laughs) What's your biggest pet peeve? I think my biggest pet peeve is just, uh, you know, lack of attention to detail, lack of focus on the core things like, which is actually, even as I say this, it sounds hypocritical because one of the things about myself is, that, you know, I, I, I sometimes lack this. And I think it's one of the reasons that, that bothers me is like, if I'm gonna do something, I need to try to do it with detail and with focus. And I think it's one of my weaknesses. And I think it, it's one of the reasons why it bothers me when I when I see it in business.
0: What's your biggest joy builder?
1: It's time with my family. I've got an amazing group of kids and an amazing wife and and an incredible extended family. It's huge. It's enormous. It's chaos. But time with them and, and you know, w- of late, it's become even more precious.
0: What's something about you few people would know?
1: I don't know. I feel like people know a lot about me.
0: Well, I thought you might say that you're a helicopter pilot.
1: Oh, geez. All right. Well, now they know everything. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not a very good one, and I'm not a licensed helicopter pilot, but there was a period of time where I was doing a lot of uh, helicopter training and have about 350 hours probably in the cockpit. Although I don't have a license, which means I always have to have a real pilot with me. (laughs) Uh,
0: What's your golf handicap and your most memorable hole-in-one?
1: Well, okay, here we go. So my golf handicap, the last time you and I played together was probably one, and today it's it's almost four. So that shows that I'm working at least as much as I should be. I have never had an official hole-in-one. I've been playing golf for... Uh, 37 years I have one hole in one but it's not official because I was entirely and completely alone Uh, this is actually a great story I was playing at Meadowbrook one day I went out by myself on Long Island I went out by myself I double bogeyed the first hole I double bogeyed the second hole on the back nine I I bogeyed the third hole and I got to the 13th hole And I hit this, the only good shot I hit all day from about 220 yards. And I couldn't see it go in. And I assumed it went over the hole, over the back of the green. And I got up there and I'm at the furthest point on the golf course. There's no one within 500 yards and the the dang thing is in the hole. (laughs) So I take a picture and I call one of my friends and I'm like, you're not going to believe what just happened. And the first thing he says, because my friends are wonderful people, is you know it's not official, right? (laughs) And I say, that's okay. And so I, I go back to the clubhouse And the pro is the only one there. I mean, it's like, this was like a Thursday afternoon in October. I walked into the pro shop and I said, Rick Meskel was the pro. And I said, Rick, you're not going to believe what happens. And he goes, I bet you had a hole in one. And I said, how did you know? He goes, what else would you be in here to tell me about? And so about a week later, he, uh, he sent me one of those plaques that you get if you make an official hole in one. He included a note with it and it said... Dear Mike, here's a plaque. He said, if you were going to lie about it, you would have done it long before now.
0: (laughs) That's a good one. You know, If I were to get into your car right now, Mike, what would be coming out of the speakers?
1: It would be a very eclectic mix. I have a collaborative playlist with my children, which has been growing over the last two or three years. So it could be Post Malone. It could be Zach Bryan. It could be Zach Brown. It could be Dave Matthews. It could be a lot of things right now. Last one. What's your superpower? I guess it's patience, maybe. Some combination of patience and optimism. And it it may be a a curse at sometimes, but I always believe things are going to get better. And sometimes, maybe sometimes I I hang on too long in investments or other things like that because of it. But, you know, I, I just am allergic to quitting.
0: You know, Mike, I know you're a great family man. What's it like working with your wife who's an outstanding entrepreneur in her own right, great restaurateur, great creative person, and what have you learned from that experience?
1: So Michelle is is an incredible entrepreneur. She would argue with me on this maybe, but she raised our children while I was off, you know, doing my entrepreneuring thing, and as they got old enough and were school-age, she decided she wanted to do something, and she had a number of projects, but the one that really stuck was she started this organic crush uh, lifestyle cafe, And initially, it was just something she and a friend of hers wanted to do in our town. It really kind of caught legs, and she opened a few more, and she has 10 of them. But I have to say, like, the last three years as a restaurant entrepreneur is going to test every ounce of patience and fiber and commitment that you have in your body. And nothing I've done has ever been as hard as what she's been doing over the last few years between... A pandemic and inflation and a labor shortage and, to her credit, she has not closed a single restaurant one day since the pandemic started. She's increased wages, she's decreased time, she's increased benefits, um, and she's done this at a you know at a time where you know I, I mean you know the restaurant business and I, I'm sure you can imagine how hard it is for a small operator of a multi store operator and. Um, I just can't say enough about how tenacious and how um, unbelievably committed she is to it.
0: And let me wrap this up with one last question here, Mike. What's the one most important piece of advice you'd give to aspiring leaders?
1: Understand the complexity of human beings. As entrepreneurs and as tech entrepreneurs and as scaled operational leaders, I think one of the things that we have a tendency to do is, is we want to create systems that make sense on paper and work in real life. And, you know, I think the best leaders I've ever worked with, they understand the difference between a system on paper and how it works when you put human beings in, into roles. And I look, I think this applies to coaches, I think this applies to executives and and leaders in in all forms. And it's one of the things that I catch myself, you know, doing all the time is I want to perfect the system, but you don't always have the perfect player for every role in the system. And so there's a human complexity element to this that that I think, you know, has to be considered. And it's one of the biggest challenges that we face. And the more tuned in we get to it, I think the better outcomes that we will produce.
0: You know, Michael is never gonna toot his own horn. He's gotta be one of the most humble guys around, but I'm sure you can hear for yourself just what a tremendous thinker and leader he is. Through all the twists and turns in his career, he's always tuned in to what's missing and how he can build it. I just love the way how he finds insights. Obviously, it's crucial for entrepreneurs who want to disrupt any industry, but really, it's wisdom for everybody to consider. Great leaders are always considering what's missing from the lives of those they serve, and then they go out and build it. Now, this week, I want you to tune into that kind of thinking. Ask yourself, what's missing in your industry or market? What's missing for your customers or your team? And then schedule some time to consider it. And you might just uncover a big opportunity of your own. So do you wanna know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders build what's missing. Coming up next on how leaders lead is Bill Farish, founder of Woodford Racing and general manager of Lane's End which is one of the world's premier thoroughbred breeding farms. You know, you just want to leave the industry in a better place than, than you found it in. And that's, that's really the driving force for me. The Breeders' Cup is sold out every year. The Derby is sold out every year. Royal Ascot is sold out every year. So we're doing some things right, but we can't stop. We've got a lot of things to try to make the sport better. So be sure to come back again next week to hear our entire conversation and you might get something that'll give you an edge for the Kentucky Derby. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.